Sit your ass down. Sit your ass down. Let's talk about the suffering. It's time to start the pain. Sit your ass down. Sit your ass down, down, and strap in. Strap in. This is gonna hurt. Gonna hurt. This is gonna hurt. Gonna hurt. Let's talk about the suffering. Suffering. It's time to start the pain. The pain. This is gonna hurt. Gonna hurt. It's time, it's time for the Suffering, for the suffering Podcast. Podcast. If you had all the time in the world, what would you do with it? Would you read, educate yourself, find a new vocation, exercise, or waste away with some much-needed rest? We move in this life so fast that we often have little or no time to sit and think. We reorganize the path and the direction that our life has taken to pump the brakes on our busy lives. Suddenly, an event happens that forces us to look at our lives from an elevated position on the battlefield. When that time comes, it's frequently too late to change the past. Here is your moment to shine or live with regret. The smart ones choose to change the trajectory and move forward using their past to reshape their future. And welcome back to another episode of The Suffering Podcast. I'm Kevin Donaldson here with Mike Felace. And on this episode of The Suffering Podcast, we sit down with Seth Ferranti to discuss the suffering of an ex-con filmmaker, because that's pretty much what you are. Seth, thank you so much for joining us, coming all this way from California. Appreciate it. Yeah, appreciate it. Thanks for having me. I mean, that's, a, that's like an odd mixture, you know, ex-con filmmaker. Ex-con you know? filmmaker. Well, you, you, you get to redefine your terms, I guess, as you get older. Yeah, you know, I, I kind of, I mean, I am ex-con and am filmmaker, but... Like kind of, I kind of been trying to brand myself like the outlaw filmmaker, you know, like my company's called outlaw films, right? You know, my parent company's called like gorilla convict. That's from the publishing house I formed while I was in. But, uh, yeah, I, I don't know. I just see it. Like you got so many people in the film industry that they, they, they want to come to crime, you know, either from the cop side or the criminal side. And if any of us can even get involved as like a consultant, you know, like we're lucky. Well, you that's know. that's why, because you have a certain perspective, and I want to get into this later on in the show, because you have a perspective on, say, a crime show that these producers, they're not going to know. Because we, we see it from a police standpoint, where when you make a police movie, Mike and I will watch that police movie within two seconds, say, you're full of shit, you didn't do your research. All right. Before we get into anything, let's get into this week's social media question. But I do want to thank Toyota of Hackensack. Listen, Toyota Hackensack always treats us very well. We, I buy my cars there. And if you're looking for a car, let them help you find a car. They're always honest. They're upfront. As cops, we don't trust anybody. But I do trust the people at Toyota of Hackensack. Go to toyotahackensack.com, and they'll help you out. So this week's social media question comes from Ken. Every week we take some, and some of them are, I'm going to tell you right now, some of them are out there. But this one's actually pretty good. It says, Ken writes, what have you always hoped you've done in your life? So you're our guest today, Seth. What, what's one thing that you've always hoped that you've done? Maybe you didn't get a chance to do it yet. Yeah, I think I think my biggest thing, and I think I kind of live my life like this, is um, I just try to you know complete what I set out to do, you know. So finish the task. Yeah. So I mean, and and this is ongoing, you know. It, it started with like articles, books, now films. So 
I'm just trying, you know, it's like a continual thing. I like to make stuff. I like to create stuff. So, you know, once I take a project on or I decide to do something, I just want to finish it, you know? So it's kind of like keeping my word, you know, to people, but also keeping my word to myself. I like that answer. I like that answer a lot. Mike, what do you think? Well, I mean, I growing up, I never really hoped to do a podcast with you, but <laughs> here I am stuck doing it. I, I, I always hoped to be a football player, but then I realized I was too short and too slow. Usually got to be about 5'2 to play football. See, that's fucked up. Uh, one thing I really wanted to do in my life, I want to like jump out of an airplane. I did it. It's you pretty know, damn it's cool. Like a, that's like a bucket list thing of mine. But at 56, you know, my bones are a little brittle and I don't. So you'll go tandem. So the first time you jump, you'll go tandem. I don't want a guy strapped to my back like that, though. You will get power fucked into the ground if that parachute doesn't open. Oh, yeah. Without a doubt. Yeah. <laughs> and usually the guys that are strapped to the back of you smell so bad. They and always now, do. If, if they come out with some, like, hot-looking women that will hang on my back, then, <laughs> may, then maybe I'll do. <laughs> For me, it's real simple. I have zero... I always consider myself very creative, but I have zero musical ability. I always wanted to learn how to play the piano. So years ago, I can type very fast. My, my grandmother was a government secretary on a manual typewriter. She used to do over 200 words a minute. So I learned from her, and I, I can type very fast. So I figured, hey, I can type. I can learn to play the piano. There was never a uh, more untrue statement than that because the piano and the typewriter are exact opposite. So if I... And it's not too late. I can do it now. And everybody says that it, it gets a little easier as you get older. But I always wanted to learn how to play the piano or a guitar or some musical instrument because I do love music. It's real simple. Ken, thank you so much for sending that question in. Keep sending them in. We'll try to get them on the air. Listen, if you get in a band, I am not coming to see you. <laughs> I could just picture you on stage, that big fat body bouncing all around, <laughs> trying to play a fucking guitar. See, he's all pissed off today. He didn't He, he didn't uh, have, his, uh, have his Cheerios this morning or something. Seth, I, I've done a lot of reading about you, and that's and the reason I picked out ex-con filmmakers because I think I read a website where that's that's where they that's how they characterize you. But I want you to give our audience a little bit of window into who you are, where you grew up. Yeah, well, I was born and raised in California. I was born in Lemoore. It's actually between San Diego, L.A., out in the desert. Um, they call it the Central Coast. Um, I was actually born on a, a military base out there. Um, that's where they train like the, the fighter pilots, you know, out, out in the desert. So if they crash, you it's know, it's like Top Gun, right? Yeah. yeah. So, so, um, and then, you know, but my dad was in the military. So, you know, we kind of bounced around. I was a military brat, but, uh, you know, like we were San Diego, but I also lived in Germany. I lived in England. You know, I lived Virginia Beach, you know, Rhode Island, Monterey, San Jose. Now, that was at like a young age where you bounced around all that young? Yeah, yeah. Basically every two years, you I know. It had to be tough, like making friends and then all yeah. of a sudden it's just like, see you later. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's weird because I think everything that I do, because I, I got like, you know, as a creative person, I got like this big thing for recognition. Like I'm always craving recognition. That's why like I make shit and put it out to the world. And I think it all stems, you know, I'm, I'm 51 now, so I've thought about it a lot. And um, I think it stems from that, you know, moving around every two years. And, you know, as soon as I get a group of friends and people know who I am, it's like we would move again. So so you yeah, have to create your whole, whole new world. Reestablish yourself again. Yeah. yeah so, I, it, so it, you know, as a young man or as a, as a kid, you know, and even a teenager, it was, you know, it, it led to a lot of insecurity, you know, on the inside, not nothing outwardly that people could see. But, uh yeah, I, I've done a lot of, you know, recollecting and, and kind of introspection. And I think that's kind of like, that's my whole thing. I want people to know who I am. So, like, I try to 
create these, you know, grand work of art, you know, they're going to have an impact. And, and so everybody's going to know my name. So, well, it's yeah. better to know your name for your works of art and instead of your former life. Well, you know, I mean, there's got to be a good part about that. You know, you hook up with a girl and it's like a hit and run, you know, <laughs> you, know you hook up with her, she starts getting serious. And all of a sudden you say, gotta go. So growing up in California and being in California now, you in California have the most interesting street signs. I don't know whether they're still up there. I know they were up there in 2000 when I was out in San Diego, the three people crossing the road. Are they still up? Man, I, I, don't, even, I don't even know. <laughs> so when, yeah, I, don't when know. I was in San Diego, you're driving down, was that five? Yeah. Going north-south. Uh, they had street signs when you got closer to the Mexican border. Three people in like a running, it's like a, a school crossing sign, but three people running. So I asked somebody, I go, what's the sign? Because people are coming over to border and they're running across Route 5 and they're getting whacked. I said, it was the strangest street, street sign I ever seen in my life. But yeah, California is like a whole different world. How do you like living out there? Oh no, I love I love California because I'm a uh, you know I love the mountains. So mm -hmm. I'm I'm like you know I love to ski. I just love to be in the mountains. So, but you know I also love the beach. So California is pretty much the only place you can be where you can go from the mountains and you know three hours and you're at the beach. So. I was gonna say you could you could like lay on a beach all day and go skiing at night in California. Yeah, it's incredible it's and um. Even like where I live now, I live I live in Chico, and it's kind of like the valley. It's like farming community. It's 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 between the Sierra Nevadas and it's between the uh, the, the coastal mountains, and um, it's just the weather, man. Like I I just go out, like I can go sit in my backyard. It's like seventy five degrees. Well, that was San know. Diego. Yeah, yeah San, San Diego's San like Diego's that too. Fantastic yeah, yeah. weather. I've never seen anything like it. I I don't think I slept more than three hours the whole three weeks I was out there because I just didn't want to miss anything. And listen, I, I, San Diego. I I had a hotel room. I was right at the bridge of Coronado. I I couldn't ask for a better thing. But uh, California, it's it's an odd place, and everybody classifies California by L.A. Like that's what and now San Francisco. So. California does get a bad rap because I know you've been to San Francisco. <laughs> I'm staying away and from LA, that. And LA, LA is a LA is a clusterfuck. I don't, you know, I got to go to LA a lot, you know, because I got a lot of friends in the industry there. So, um, you know, I'm there, I'm there, you know, at least once every two months. But uh, it's just the traffic, man. I cannot stand it. There's so many people there, man. It's crazy. Well, now it's got the bad homeless situation there, and and it's sort of the city's got to do something because I've implode. seen like pictures of like Muscle Beach and all those like yeah, Venice bad. Beach and all that. It's like a homeless heaven now. When I when yeah. I went out there, that's the place I had to go. Yeah, they got all the crazy beach. people out there too. Actually, I love I love Venice Beach, man, because it's kind of uh, I mean, it's beautiful as California, but at the same time, it has like that real seedy element, and like you <laughs> never know what's gonna happen. But you know, like I say, you know, some people don't like to. I like to go. I like to go there and walk around. But you know, I'm not scared that anybody's gonna do anything to me. So, you but know. the vast majority of California is. Like you said, mountains, deserts, beauty, beaches. Yeah. It's it's beautiful. It really is beautiful out there. It just gets a, a little And it's so it's so big, man. It's like, dude, like I live in Chico, so Chico's basically between San Francisco and Lake Tahoe, mm -hmm. right? And I'm like two and a half hours to Tahoe, two and a half hours to Frisco, right? Maybe about, I don't know, eight hours from LA. But then like you can go like like you go all the way up north, like into the Emerald Triangle. That's like five hours, and it just goes. It's like straight mountains on the coast. It just goes, you know, for like hours and hours before you get to Oregon. So, and then that's not even talking about like you go to LA. It's like you know another couple hours down to San Diego. So the state is just so big. It's like it's really almost like its own country. Yeah, well, that's why it's got so much pull in in the whole world because of its size. So you you grew up in these military bases. And your father, what your I'm assuming your father was military. What, yeah, yeah, yeah. What, what yeah. was he? 
No, he was a Marine. He yeah. was a Marine. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So you somehow get involved in this life of crime. I, I don't, I've grown up with military kids before. And they do usually go one way or the other. They either ultra strict or they just take that other road. How did you? How you did know, you start? We, we see that in law enforcement too. Most yeah. most of the bad kids out there are cops' kids. Yo, oh, for parties. Oh, yeah. the best parties were were at cops and kids. fireworks too. Yeah, because yeah. yeah. we, we confiscated <laughs> we them confiscate from the fireworks and give them to the kids. Uh, so how did you go down this this other path? Yeah, I think you know I, I was just. You know, it, it's from the whole thing, like like moving around, right? I, I kind of figured out, like, when I was 13, you know, I, w- I wanted people to know who I am. I wanted that acceptance. Like, I craved that recognition, you know? So, like, when I was 13 and I kind of started experimenting with marijuana, I started experimenting with, like, psychedelics, like LSD, mushrooms, stuff like that. And and I was always the kid, you know, that I, I could go and I would I was a bold, brash kid, so I would get this stuff. So, you know, everybody wants to party. You know, they put pull their money together, and I was the one that would actually go score, you know. So I figured out really quick, you know, within the first couple of years doing this, by the time I was 15, that I was like, you know what, like, I can get high for free. You know, and after I figured this out, then it was like another realization, probably by the time I was like 16, I was like, I can get high for free, and I can make money. Wow. You know, and then, and, and then it gave you acceptance in, in that crew. Well, yeah, because you know, the acceptance then, you didn't have with moving around the whole time. The next evolution in this was like, you know, I figured out like, okay, if I'm the guy that's bringing the, the, the weed and uh, psychedelics, I'm like, then I'm like a rock star. Like everybody knows my name. Everybody's waiting for me to go to the party. So I'm saying this was like a three year thing, you know, that took me to, you know, this transition, you know, from 13, 14, 15, 16, where I had these kind of realizations. And then by the time I was 16, I was like, man, I was like, this is, you know, everybody knows who I am now. This is what I wanted. This is what I craved. All, you know, all the girls know who I am. That was the George Young. That's, that's what attracted George Young to it. Yeah. It's a popularity, you know, it really, and you got some money now too. You know, I never thought, I, I, I I don't know why I've never put that together. Like you you always wonder why people get into dealing or doing something on the drug side. It makes perfect sense now. It really does make sense. Yeah. And but that's why I love doing this show because I get to see that different perspective on things. Yeah. So by by the time I'm 16, I'm basically I'm I'm like a rock star, you know. But I'm not a rock star. But I'm a rock star because you know I I go like even the older the older people like 18, 19, 20, you know the people that graduated, the people in college, they're still waiting for me. You know, I'm the one. You're getting you know, invited to all the college parties and stuff. I mean, I'm I'm the one, and and whatever it is about me, I because I, I was always bold, brash, like, I, and I was big too. Like, I was gonna say like you're 13, a big guy now. Were you bigger then too? Like 13, I was six one by the time I was 13, and I was already shaving at 13. <laughs> you know, I mean, I, obviously, I was a young man, so I was a lot skinnier. You know, I mean, I you know, you know, as as you get older, you know, you gain weight, you know, and you get bigger. Plus, you know, I did 21 years in prison, so I did a lot of weightlifting and working out and shit like that. But uh, yeah, but. I just always, you know, like I was the type of kid, like when I was 14, I was dating like 16, 17 year olds, you know, and it was all, you know, it was because I was a bigger dude, but it was all because of how I carried myself and the access I got. Cause like, I'm telling you, I was 17. I would go down. I'm, I'm in Northern Virginia at this point. By the time I was 17, my, my dad actually retired and he was working in the Pentagon um, for a defense contractor. So I would, I would fly down when I was 17 to Texas Dallas, Texas, and through like mutual friends down there that went to college down there, I hooked up with like a Mexican national who had like a trucking company and he was bringing in like brick pot. 
right? And he would get it up to Dallas. And I would go down there and like, you know, I went down there and I maybe had enough money to buy like, you know, 10 pounds or 20 pounds, which you're, we're talking like $400 each. So you're talking about maybe four to eight grand. Yeah, but, but it's pure though, right? You can cut uh, it up. No, I mean, it's, it's, I mean, I don't know. You don't really cut weed up. You know, I mean, weed is weed. You know, it's brick pot. It's like, it's not that weed back then compared to the weed we have now was garbage. <laughs> you know, the brick pot was garbage. You know, but it was the only thing that was coming in at that time, you know, except in the fall when they would have the harvest, like in the, the Emerald Triangle or Kentucky, you would get good weed for about three months. But uh, I, I was going down there and whatever it was about me, you know, like my confidence or whatever, like I convinced this dude, you know, to basically give me like, you know, front me like 50 or 100 pounds. I packed it in a suitcase, you know, flew back up, checked it. <laughs> and when it went right to DC national and picked it up right off the turnstile. Wow. You know, that, that's to try to do yeah. that today. I, I don't think you could do it today. I don't, I don't you know, I mean, cause back then Those you could damn just, dogs in the airport will pick it right up. <laughs> I mean, you could just go to the airport back then and you could pay cash for a ticket. You know, I would pay cash for a one way ticket and I would tell him my name was John Smith. You know, this is like pre Patriot act, right? you know, so they didn't have all the licenses, you know, I mean, you could, they wasn't really big on money. I mean, you could really, because they only had like the metal detectors. So that's I mean, some brass balls, yeah. though. Yeah, but th that's that's kind of how, you know, I I just developed, you know, all these, uh, you know, access to like drug dealers. I because they, I think, you know, like when you come, it's like anything in life when you you're confident and you tell them like, you know, because that's why like in the drug trade, like they'll be like, oh, you know, because big distributors they're looking for people who can move their shit. Right. So, you know, they're like, oh, can you take 50? Can you do that? And a lot of people are like, oh, no, I can't do that. Or they don't want to have the responsibility. I was the type of dude, I would just jump on it. I'd be like, yeah, give me whatever. I'll move it. I was going to say, from moving around from area to area, how do you keep up that trade? I mean, you got to you gotta get yourself involved with, like, these other, these bigger drug dealers. Yeah, well, I mean, I moved around a lot as a kid. So, um, you know, my dad retired uh, from the military probably, you know, about 86 you know, when I was probably like 16 and we settled in Northern Virginia and that's kind of where, you know, my whole thing started. But, you know, also from growing up in California, I had contacts in California, friends, you know, that childhood friends or whatever. And, and, and I, I would go back to California too, a lot of times in the summer, you know, and, and visit and stuff. So kind of like they got involved in, in kind of like the dead counterculture, Grateful Dead counterculture scene, you know, I kind of got involved in the Grateful Dead counterculture scene. So then, you know, once we get like 16, 17, 18, and we're kind of like comparing notes. So I, I got to the point, like, you know, for the LSD, I could get them to ship LSD, like through the mail, you know, to me in Northern Virginia. And I would supply all the colleges. I could get them to ship. And it, like, we're talking, this is like 88, 89. Right. You know, I could get them like in the Emerald Cri Triangle where they grew like what we call kind bud back then, mm -hmm. you know, as opposed to the Mexican brick pot. I would get them to like mail me because back then, you know, the, the farmers, you know, they, they were only trying to get maybe like 20, 30 pounds a year, you know, cause they grow in the mountains up there. So they, you know, grow on the side of the mountains and everything. There were so many helicopters and stuff from the war on drugs. They really concentrated on that area. So the, a lot of these farmers, they were just trying to get like 20, 30 pounds a year. And that's how, you know, they made their money, but they were selling like each of those pounds for probably, you know, like three, four grand. You know, and then like down the line, you know, people are paying like whatever, you know, a hundred dollars a quarter, you know, which is like $6,400 a pound. So that's how you can make money on it. I'm listening to you talk about this stuff and you've developed this whole business plan in your head at a very young age. Do you realize, yes, you took the path of least resistance, right? Would you agree with that? That to get to your, to get to your goal of that acceptance. 
This yeah, seemed yeah, to be yeah. the, the fastest no, conduit. You know what? I, I found out I was always good at everything. Like I was good at sports. You know what I'm saying? I was good academically. You know, I was I was I was good with girls. I was pretty much good at everything I did, but I wasn't great at anything. And you know, like when you're in high school and you're growing up and, and there's people that are just like great at something. You got the jocks and you got, you know, Yeah, and, and in comparison, you know, I was very versatile. So when I be kind of became the drug dealer, when I became the bad boy, that was like something that you were the best at. I could become the best at. And and it was easy to do it. Because I, I have a feeling knowing you for a very short time and talking to you on the phone that I have a feeling no matter what you did in life, you were going to be successful. Like you, there are certain people that are set out in this life to be successful as long as they, they make the right moves. You chose drugs and you were ultra successful, but I'm pretty sure if you would have chose your current profession of writing and, and filmmaking that you still would have been perfect. You would have yeah. been great at maybe take a little bit longer. And that's that I see that in so many different people who go away to prison and it takes them that moment of clarity, that time where they can just sit back, relax, collect their thoughts and reorganize to get to there. But you were making, how much money do you think you were making a week on, on your, your best? I, I had a nine month run probably like from 90 into 91 before I caught my fed case where I was probably making like 25, 30 grand a month profit. Oh. As a 19, 20 I was going to say old. late teens, early 20s. Yeah, as a 19, 20 year old. So, so nine months, you know, everything was a buildup. You know, I, I had that age in like 13, 16, where I had all the realizations and I was kind of dabbling. And then I had like that age, like 16 to 19, where I was kind of getting the contacts. You know, I was getting the connections. All my friends were at different colleges. You know, I ended up by uh, basically like 89, 90. I was supplying 15 colleges in five states on the East Coast. Yeah with LSD and weed. And this is what I used to do. I just used to drive around, man. I had like a circle, you know, I, I would go down like 81 of Virginia. I would talk, I would stop, you know, I would stop like, you know, uh, VMU, you know, Virginia, uh, you know, university of Virginia, Radford, you know, Virginia tech, you know, uh, Virginia Commonwealth. And then I would come up, I would come up to Kentucky, like Eastern Kentucky, University of Kentucky. I would go into West Virginia, West Virginia University, which in Morgantown, which was like a huge fucking party school, you know, and then I would go into Pennsylvania and I would hit Penn State at State College, but then I would hit all the satellite campus because Penn State has like seven satellite campuses. Mm -hmm. So I would hit all those. Then I would come back and down into Maryland, like University of Maryland. And then I would even go into DC and hit some of the DC schools, you know, and then like the Northern Virginia schools like George Mason. So I just used to like basically like drive around in these states and I would drop off weed. And a lot of times it, it was front because it was all people I went to high school with. I went to a real big high school in Northern Virginia called I was Robinson. Say, you you got to have a, like a contact at all these different places. You can't yeah. just pull up in your car and say, okay, weed for some. I'm set the weed guy. It doesn't work <laughs> yeah. that way. But you, you, you had developed this business and you're probably living like a king at 19 years old, 30 grand a month. You're living like a king. Let's, let's call it what it is yeah. in 1990. So, you know, I mean, different, you know, 1990, I think 30 grand was you buy yourself a, a nice car or was it did you no, I, get like I, a nonchalant car? I, I had, um, I used to get like those, they had those Subaru. I used to get the Subaru turbo station wagons that said the four wheel drive on the side. So I had three of those. Those were like my smuggler. Because I'm a drug smuggler. That's what I was. You know, I was a drug smuggler. You graduated from pot dealer to drug smuggler. Yeah. So, you know, because I would go, like like I say, I would go to Kentucky and I would get weed. I would go to Texas and get weed. I would go down to Florida, like Fort Myers and get weed. I would get stuff. I wouldn't drive from the West Coast, but I would get stuff, the LSD and the mushrooms and, and the, the Humboldt County bud. I would get it sent. 
you know, from the West Coast, you know, in smaller amounts, you know, but like I would say, I would, I would drive down to Texas. I would pick up like a hundred pounds, you know, 150 pounds. I would go down to Fort Myers, Fort Myers. Like a lot of people don't know Fort Myers. Fort Myers was a big drug port in Florida. I used to get a lot of weed out of there. So how, how eventually you're riding high, you're doing this great business. There were, had to come a time where the man, the government's looking at you because you, you're, you're moving a lot. You, there's eyes on you. So when's the first time that you got the inkling that something was maybe amiss? Yeah, I used to do, I used to do these things where I would actually like, I would just like disappear for like two or three months, you know, cause I knew, cause see my name too. Like I knew in Northern Virginia, not everybody knew my last name, but everybody knew Seth. Hmm. Right. Cause that, you know, I mean, I know they got like Seth Rogan and all these people now with Seth, but back then in the late eighties, I mean, there was hardly anybody named Seth. You know, this has been like more like in the nineties and two thousands, this name has been more commonplace. So I knew people knew my name. So I would, you know, kind of go take two months. Like when, when my case was developing, I was actually in Hawaii for two months, you know, cause I, I felt like it may, it was a little hot cause they had a bust at UVA. Mm-hmm. You know, it it was like one of those busts, like where the DEA, where they went in on like a high profile college fraternity at UVA and they didn't really get anything. You know, they got like, you know, some bongs, some scales, a few hits of acid or whatever, but that acid was from me, mm. you know, so people started mentioning my name. So I was going to say, these college kids are going to start chirping. Oh, where'd yeah. you get this from Seth? Yeah. So, you know, but a lot of them, a lot of these people were so far removed because I I'd insulated myself, you know, like the, the bigger I got, I insulated myself. I always did like, I would basically deal with like five people, you know, and, and, and through them, you know, I would even tell them sometimes, cause I knew the people who did the stuff. Maybe I even went to school with them, but you know, like, like I say, I'm, we might all three know each other. We all deal drugs. I'm the source, but I don't want to fuck with you. Cause I don't like the way you move. So everything goes through you. You know what I'm saying? So one point of contact, that way you, you lessen the chance of that spider web. Yeah. yeah. That, that's that's the way. We develop CIs, confidential informants, in our job. You you deal with some of – people are trying to get out of, out of jail. So they're not always totally Stay up out front. of jail, too. They're not always totally up front, but you deal with one CI. Because oh, yeah. when you have that net of CIs and they all know about each other, they're going to start working yeah. against you. Yeah, I would try. I would try to compartmentalize too. Basically, that's what I would do. I would compartmentalize. I didn't want this person to know what this person was doing. I didn't know want this person to know how much this person was moving. You know, and then my my biggest thing because look, I didn't carry a gun or anything. You know, like I was not like a criminal organization. I was basically like a, a freelance one man you know, show. Yeah, entrepreneur, and and I used to drive around and I always had drugs, money. You know in my car, you know, and I had different stash houses at different places, but my, my, and back then, you know, we didn't have cell phones back then, but we had like the 1-800 beeper. That was like, I had the 1-800 beeper, you know? So I was like big time. They did have those big brick phones, but they were like so expensive. I didn't have one of those. I think they were going for like 2000 back then. Plus they $9 were just, for a phone call. They yeah. were just so big. So I just had the 1-800 beeper, but that was my biggest, my, my biggest deterrent against like getting robbed or, you know, against, uh, you know, someone like, you know, pulling up on me or even like somebody narking me out and finding me out. I was the type of dude, like I might be 30 minutes from Morgantown, but you know, the dudes are beeping me like, Hey, we got your money. When are you going to come through? You know, and I'd be like, Oh, I'm going to be there in two days. And I know I'm going to be there. I'm like half hour away. So they don't you have know? time to set up. That's good. Yeah. So yeah. that, that was what, that was like, uh, you know, I used a lot of misdirection, you know, and, and then sometimes like dudes would be hitting me and, I would just show up. Like I wouldn't even let them know when I'm coming. I would just show up, 
you know, because I had like all these different colleges. I had like dudes I went to high school with, so they got all these different party houses, and I had like keys to all the houses because most of them I paid rent and I paid their phone bills because when I would get to these places, I would talk in their phones like crazy long distance because that's how I did all my business. You know, it was never like in a phone. My like phone. I said, we had no cell phones or yeah. So I I, I would go. Booth. Yeah, I would I would might have a girl at a college or I'd be at my friend's party house and I would be running their phone bill at like two, three hundred a month. You as know? long as you're paying it. Yeah, it, it, yeah they, they didn't care. care, but you know, so it wasn't my name because I usually use pay phones a lot too. So, you know, I, I what would are try they? to yeah. nobody what are, knows now. What are, but, what are know, they? My, I, my yeah. son saw one, my twelve year old saw one the other day. He goes, Dad, what's that? And I said, Well, that's that's how we used to get our drugs. Yeah. <laughs> no, I I used to have like I, I used to write it down so there'd be banks of pay phones you know, these different colleges and, you know, where I had different stash houses and I would have the numbers written down and I would have a number like number one, number two, number three, number four. So basically I, I could call somebody that was somewhere else and I could be like, Oh, hit me on. I wouldn't even have to say the number. Cause I would give them, I would write it out for them. You know, the dudes I was working with and I would give them these lists and I'd be like, well, hit me a number one in West Virginia. And they know, you know, they dial the number that I talk to them. Because sometimes you got to go wait. They got to wait till they go to a pay phone. And then you always got to have a lot of quarters too. That's a yeah. lot of moving parts. Yeah. That's a lot of moving parts. Did ever get uh, the paranoia ever set in? You sound no, like you're I'm, insulating yourself yeah, pretty good. Not when I when I was doing it. No, I, I mean, because because I, I just like the whole war on drugs thing, right? Because look, so so the war on drugs really started popping off, you know, like around eighty seven, eighty eight. I guess that's when they changed the laws and Nancy Reagan, right? Just yeah. say no. Yeah, but w- what they were, it, w- it was like the the I don't know, called the Omni. Bus crime, but I think Joe Biden was like, you know, the architect of it. But um, it was at first, you know, because in the 80s, there, the, you know, it was the crack era, you know, and, and all the narco terrorism. So, you know, looking back now, you know, our, our country, you know, rightly so or, or not rightly so, I think, and even like in New York, like cops were getting shot by crack dealers. You know, they, they had the big, the Edward yeah. Byrne case. Yes. You know what I'm saying? Where they just went up and executed this rookie cop. He was just like, you know, watching a witness's house. So, I mean, there was a lot of, I think, a lot of fear in government because they saw what was happening over here with the crack. And they were like, they didn't want it to be like Pablo Escobar, like Colombia, the narco-terrorism, because that, that stuff was huge in the 80s, you know? And, and look, Pablo Escobar almost took over Colombia. I mean, Pablo Escobar bombed a plane out of the fucking sky to kill a fucking uh, a political yeah. guy. But what they never realize is pot and LSD are far different than crack. Oh yeah, no, but so so they made these laws though because of the crack and because they didn't want this narco terrorism, you know, which was funded by money to take over, and they saw all these guys in the hood. So they made these laws, you know, reactive, you know, rightly so or not rightly so. I mean, it depends on you know who tells the story, but uh, they were they were just basically going after all the black guys in the hood for the first you know three or four years when they made these laws, you know, and that that's who the people were being targeted, you know, some. Some because they deserved it, and some because they were just there. They were you know? looking at. They weren't looking at Seth the White dude. <laughs> yeah, but then well, you don't fit the profile. I'm. I'm sorry. You just don't. Yeah. So I. I just. I never thought. And like I say, I lived outside D.C., so I, I saw all this stuff going on. But I just never thought, like, because I knew dudes older than me that were like big weed dealers, and they had started businesses and all types of stuff, and that was kind of like my plan. You know, I wanted to become a cash millionaire by the time I was 25. That was my plan, and I was going to have all these different businesses, you know, and, and funnel all my drug money into them and fund them. So I, I never had the inclination that I could even get caught. First off, I thought I was too smart to get caught. You know, but second off, I didn't think I would ever be targeted. But after 
the inner city is getting hit so hard with these drug war laws for like three or four years, you know, then, then people started claiming racism and, and, you know, I mean, we can look back now and we can say, yeah, a lot of these laws were racist, you know, in a lot of ways, but that's when like the DEA and the fed said like, okay, well, we're going to bust white drug dealers too, you know, to make it seem like we're not racist. So that's what they did. I was in that first wave. My case was 91. So that was the first wave when they went out to the suburbs you know, and they started getting the weed dealers and the LSD. Because, you know, I mean, basically, I mean, they got big Coke dealers out, out in the suburbs too. But I, I think they anybody, like if you're dealing with like Coke, heroin, meth, I mean, those guys are getting popped because there's a lot of violence associated with the trade. There's a lot of money. But I mean, the, the marijuana and psychedelics, I mean, it, that trade, like, like I came up under the Grateful Dead, right? So the Grateful Dead, there's a bunch of people that follow the Grateful Dead around. Oh, they call yeah. them deadheads, right? Deadheads, yeah. And follow, so follow them around the country. Yeah, and, and a lot of them, like that's what they deal. They deal marijuana, and they deal LSD, they deal mushrooms, right? But they call them they call them families, right? And I always thought I always thought it was weird because like, uh, you know, they call them families. They don't call them criminal organizations. So I, I think there's like a big difference, you know, like somebody that's involved in like marijuana, LSD, is it's you know, even though, you know, could say, okay, yeah, you could brand it as a criminal organization, but it's not the same. It's not the mafia. It's not like these, you know, these crack dread, drug lords, these Colombians, you know, where, because if you snitch in a Grateful Dead family, you just get ostracized. You don't get killed. Right. You don't you know? get to go to the next show. <laughs> yeah. You just, you don't know, everybody stops fucking with you. Right. But no, you know, no, nobody's getting killed. It's not like, you know, the bikers or the mafia or the, you know, these other drug lords, like the Mexican tar tells now, you know, you snitch. I mean, you're dead. Yeah, Your you're family's dead. Yeah. Your cousins are dead. But there had to be that, that, uh, so I guess a come to Jesus moment where they were on you and you, what was that feeling like? Yeah. So I knew, um, I, I was actually, I was in Hawaii and, um, like there was like some little bus like on the state level and like shit was getting fucked up. And like, and like some, some of my guys, like dudes I went to high school with that were supposed to be working together. You know, it seemed like dudes were snitching on each other and, and you know, I'm, I'm just chilling out. I'm waiting. I'm basically waiting for the fall. Cause I would make my money in the fall when, when they harvested the weed. That's I made the most money like on, on like what we call the kind, but like the good weed that they would grow in this country. So, um, I come back, I cut my Hawaii trip short and I come back and really like in retrospect, it was one of the stupidest things I ever did. So I come back and I, I'm like walking basically right into a hornet's nest. You know, they got like a, a and it kind of went from that UVA case, that University of Virginia case, and they kept investigating, they kept spiraling and they kept getting more people because a lot of people knew who I was, you know, and then it was also the summertime. So everybody was back from college in Fairfax County. You know, that's where, that's where I, Robinson high school, you know, that's where my, my parents lived. And, and that's where like, I, I had a couple different houses, you know, and, and, and where I was basically ran my operations from. So everybody was back and it, it was like the, the summer of 91 too. And it was like, you know, back then, like nobody would think about that now, but back then, like sometimes in the summer, especially like 88, 89, 90, 91, like it would be so dry for weed. Like you couldn't even get any weed. You know, because, you know, the harvest would only be for like maybe three months in the fall and then the Mexican brick pot was coming, you know, but like they were, they were doing a lot of uh, stuff on the border. So that stuff wasn't always coming in. So, you know, I, I even remember like on the East coast, like the law enforcement would put up, like, you think they would put up billboards, like, you know, referring to weed, like you think it's dry now, wait till this summer, <laughs> you know, they would be like billboards up like that, you know, but, um, 
yeah, so I kind of come back into this hornet's nest, you know, and, there, and there's no weed and um, like shit's kind of fucking up, you know, like a couple little different busts. And all I'm thinking is I need to get my money up for the fall because that's when I'm going to make a killing, you know, because I was basically making like a thousand dollars a pound off that good weed, you know. And, but you had to come with the money because they just do these little grows like 20, 30 pounds. So, you know, you got to come with like 20 or 30 grand and just buy the farmers out, you know, and I would go see like every fall, I would go see like five, six, seven, eight, nine farmers, you know? So I'm coming back, cut my trip short from Hawaii. I come back and I have no idea. I'm, I'm like basically walking to, into the hornet's nest. You know, there's already an investigation started. They don't know my full name, but the, they kind of got an idea who I am. You know, and and because you know everybody's saying everything's from me, and then I did another real stupid mistake because it was so dry, there was no weed, so I couldn't get any weed to sell. So uh, I just like flooded, I flooded the 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 whole northern Virginia with like acid, like just <laughs> like so. And this is how much I, I flooded. So when I first started bringing LSD into into northern Virginia and, and into the East Coast, like you know eighty seven, eighty eight it would probably be like $15 a hit, maybe up $20 a hit by this time, like 91, it's like two, $3 a hit. Oh, you know what I'm saying? And over flooded it. Uh, yeah. It saturated it. Yeah. And, and all my people from college, they're all in the same place and everybody, you know, cause we, we're all trying to gear up for the fall. Cause we know that's when we can make the money with the good weed when they harvest. So, um, everybody's trying to get their money up. And so everybody's trying to sell acid. So it was just saturated. And uh, then they had this other thing that happened. Uh, actually, in Fairfax County, there's this area called Clifton. It's like all these million, like back then it was all these million dollar homes, like, you know, big, you know, I don't know, maybe like five acres. But, um, you know, like all kids in the suburbs, you know, when the parents are gone, you know, we throw parties. So they had this big field party in Clifton and like we would bring in stages, we bring in like skate ramps and, and there might be like 500, you know, 600 people there. And it'd be out on this five acres, you know, in, in this field behind the house. And, you know, inevitably, you know, the, you know, later at night, the cops would get called. So the cops would come in and, um, and it was just, everybody was tripping on acid. Right. So there was this one 15 year old kid. He was like running naked through the woods, like tripping on acid you know, having a bad trip or I don't know, whatever. And, uh, you know, a cop was chasing him. The cop grabbed him, you know, tackled him. And this kid somehow managed to take the cop's gun out and he shot him in the arm. Oh no! So once that happened, now then, the lies are on you. Then it was like, it was, it was like, you know, and like I say, this from my point of view, you know, I, I can see law enforcement's point of view too, but from my point of view, it was, it was basically like a LSD witch hunt. You know, like they were just going hard. So they brought the DEA in. And like I say, some, some other people had been investigating all this different stuff on the state level and the federal level. And then, you know, at this point, once one of their own got shot and like I say, I mean, I'm not, I'm, you know, dude didn't get killed or nothing, but it, you know, it was a flesh wound, but I'm sure, you know, I've never got shot in the arm, but I'm sure it's not very pleasant. <laughs> sure. It's got to hurt, <laughs> you know? So, you know, I'm not discounting it or downplaying it, but, uh, yeah, so they started this investigation, and um, actually the dude who sold that kid, because that kid, you know, he told him where he got the LSD from. So the dude that sold it to him was actually a dude at one time. He was, like, one of my real good friends, but this is way back, you know, probably like five, you know, four years ago when we were, like, uh, freshmen. 
you know, our sophomores. So he was still, he was very far removed from me, but they got him and then he kind of took him up the chain and the chain eventually led to me. And, um, you know, then, like I say, it, it was crazy. So from when that happened, like maybe in June, like when I was in Hawaii and then I got back, I kind of walk into this and then like July, August 91, it's like crazy. Like everybody I talk to, you know, it's like, oh, the DEA is coming, you know, the, the, the state narcotics people are coming, you know, and they're asking about you. So I'm like hearing this for like two months at the same time, I'm, I'm trying to, you know, sell as much acid. I got all this acid in the area and I'm just trying to like get rid of it. I'm trying to dump it. Cause my whole goal is still like by September, I want to get as much cash as possible so I can buy this weed and make money. And, um, yeah, it was just, it was, it was a bad situation on my part. And like I say, I, I had no idea of the the federal laws or, or that they were coming out, you know, to the suburbs or that they were actively looking for cases, you know, out there. And, and, you know, in, in retrospect, it, it was really stupid of me. If I would have had some type of intuition or some type of foresight, you know, I could have maybe just disappeared or whatever, but I just kept doing my thing. And, you know, they eventually found me and I got indicted federally. How much did they catch you with? I got caught with nothing. You got caught with nothing. It was just what you sold, but it was just the, the case that was they built caught. Up they caught. You. They caught somebody else with uh, like uh, like 120 sheets. You know, which is which is basically like uh, you know, twelve thousand, twelve thousand hits acid. Wow, wow. And so were, and and you know, granted, I mean, it was mine. You know, but you didn't have at it one, at one point. It was yours. Possession <laughs> is nine tenths of the law, and it, it didn't seem like you had possession of it. I, I really, I never got caught with. You know, I, I did. Uh, I got twenty five years in prison. I never got caught with any drugs. Well, stop. Never got caught with any money. Stop for a second. Yeah. So you got caught with no drugs. You got caught with no drugs. They give you twenty five years. Did Did you piss somebody off? Well, yeah, no, I did because I, I took off. I was a fugitive for two years. So no kidding. Yeah, I, I took off. I, I, you know, I was U.S. Marshals top fifteen most wanted list. Well, what that feel like inside when you were on the run? That anxiety. I'd say the first six months, man, I, I was kind of paranoid because, um, you know, like when the, the, the when the feds come in and, and kind of crash your world like that, and, and you know they get to everybody, and you just think like, uh, like they're like this universal eye in the sky, you know, and big and, brothers watching. Yeah, and, and I mean, really, it's not like that. I mean, yeah. At, at, at some level, I mean, there's probably people that can do that, but it's not like the DEA doesn't have that type of capability or the, or the local narcotics officers don't have that type of capability. But, uh, yeah. So the, when I went on the run, like the first six months, I was like, I was like super paranoid, man. Cause I thought like they could track me, you know, now, I mean, they could track you with the phone, but you know, back then I had different ID and everything. I was just like super paranoid cause they, they kind of collapsed my whole world. What yeah. was this? Th that's what I was going to say. When you were on a run, you couldn't go back to your old friends. No, I, I cut yeah. off. I cut off time with basically everyone. You, you yeah. couldn't go to your your crash houses. Would you just go from hotel to hotel, or no? I, I just went out. I went out to California, and um, I actually got a place right in Hollywood. <laughs> you know, and, and I hung out there for six. So you months. fit right in, hang out with the, yeah, yeah, all yeah. the other drug dealers. No, yeah, but yeah. your parents, being a military kid, your father's a marine. That's got to be tough. Like, what was their reaction when you get caught? Now, when you went on the run, before you went on the run, before you answered that. Did you already know what t what time you're looking at? Yeah, I was looking at twenty to life. Yeah, twenty to life. What did your parents say to that? I mean, they they didn't agree with it. I mean, they 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 you know they I mean because through this whole thing, like from the age of thirteen, I, I'd kind of you know destroyed the relationship with my parents because I, I was kind of like you know the proverbial like you know rebel without a cause, except I had a cause and it was like LSD and marijuana. <laughs> but uh, 
you know, I'd really destroyed the relationship with them. You know, there was a lot of friction, you know, they really weren't happy. You know, they kind of, they didn't exactly know at the level I was doing stuff, but they knew I was doing stuff. And, you know, even though they wanted to deny it, you know, it was still kind of there, you know what I'm saying? It's so be tough uh, for them to take. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, they obviously weren't happy, but, um, you know, when they did find out like the time I was facing, I mean, they, they thought it was wrong. They were like, you know, I was a first time nonviolent offender. So they were like, how can you be looking at 20 to life? But did they know how in depth you are into it? I mean, yeah, once I caught the case and the newspaper articles and stuff came out, yeah, they knew. I mean, the Washington Post was calling me the uh, Fairfax County LSD Kingpin or the Northern Virginia LSD Kingpin. You got that fame and nor- notoriety you were looking for, except yeah. the wrong guy. Uh, I mean, on the outlaw status, yeah, my, my outlaw resume was uh, pretty big back then. So you go away and you do, how many years did you do total? 21. You did 21 85%, years. 85%, right? Yeah. That's crazy. That first day, and I've heard this, I've never been to prison, but I've heard this, that you're going to get as reformed as you're going to get once that door closes the first night. Is that, is there any validity to that? Uh, I don't know. I think for me, it was more, um, you know, I had a lot of time. So, you know, I was very angry at first. So, you know, um, I did get involved right with college classes. Like right when I came in, they, they, they used to, uh, you could take them through the Pell Grant. They actually had the, the instructors come in you know, right from, I was in Manchester, Kentucky, a medium high security prison. And, uh, it was weird cause they had the teachers coming in from Eastern Kentucky to teach in the prison at night. And I used to sell drugs at Eastern Kentucky. So that, that was like kind of weird. <laughs> Probably but, you ever uh, sell some the, of the instructors. Yeah. <laughs> no. Hey, remember me? But that's interesting. So you, you get all this time and at what point during your time do you decide to use it? And I, I know this from my stint in rehab. So my stint in rehab, I went in there with three notebooks, two books, because I'm going to use my time. I'm not going to sit there and waste it. You know, you can sit there and you can rest. You can do this. You can do that. You can screw around. You can, but you chose to use your time. How did that decision come about? I think it was a gradual process, like over the first 10 years. But I mean, I jumped right into the college classes. I mean, basically, because like prison is real boring. You know, so do anything, something to uh, do. So, and, 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 you know, I'd always been a big education dude before I got into drugs and both my parents are like, you know, like my whole family, even my, my little brother and little sister, like everybody has master's degrees. I finally got my master's degree in prison. So I was the last one to get it, but you know, it took me a while to get it. But, uh, yeah, so I, I, I dived right into the education, but, um, it kind of took me like 10 years. I was just kind of doing that, you know, just kind of break the monotony, you know, and kind of repair the relationships with my parents because they were big believers in education. So when I started getting like 4.0s and stuff like that, that's how I kind of repair the relationship with my family during my first couple years. But uh, yeah, it took me like 10 years, but like 10 years in, you know, um, maybe by maybe like six years in, I, I kind of decided uh, I wanted to be a writer, you know, and, and that's how like everything kind of progressed from then, you it's know. It's just another form of creation. So yeah. this is, this is actually... It sounds crazy that you go to prison as a successful drug dealer and you end up in prison as a successful writer. Because like I said before, I have the feeling about you that you would have been successful no matter what you do. You just have to put your full energy and your full thought. I'm watching the way you're just reeling off statistics and math in your head on these drugs. This is this, this is this, this is yet. Yeah, I did this and this and this. How did you figure out the writing game? Because the writing game is brutal. Meanwhile, Kevin hasn't been successful on one venture in his life yet. 
But I, yeah, I just you know I'm I, very I, successful breaking your chops. <laughs> I took the courses, so um, you know, I, I was taking. I started out in the classes, but then they they did away with the Pell grants. So then, luckily, by that time, I'd taken the Pell grants for two years, so I, I had like really good grades. And so my parents, you know, said if you want to continue college, we'll pay for a correspondence course. So I actually. Uh, I got in a correspondence program through Penn State. You know, that's weird too because I used to sell drugs there. So, uh, <laughs> he goes you know, from, so, it's like visiting the campus. That's yeah, all it is. He goes from Penn State to State Penn. State Penn. <laughs> <laughs> so I got my AA degree through correspondence. And when you do correspondence, you know, it was all through the mail. Um, you can basically do like a business kind of administration route, or you can do like a liberal arts. And, you know, if you do like a liberal arts or humanities, I mean, it's basically like a lot of writing, so writing heavy, you know, like history, writing papers. So I started kind of teaching myself to write. So I got, you know, I got my AA degree, then I got my BA degree through uh, University of Iowa. And then I finally, you know, somewhere, you know, about, you know, 15 years down the line, you know, I got my master's degree you know, um, from California state university. And that was more film heavy, but you know, I, I just always saw as a writer, it's, it's like a progression. It's like, I started writing articles, you know, just like little pieces. And I started getting them published from, from the inside. You know, um, I actually started writing for vice. I did, we'll start doing a column for vice. Like when I was in prison and then I got out, this is like, uh, early two thousands. And I got out and vice is like this big media conglomerate. Like I had no idea. And I'd been, I was like a vice OG. I'd been writing for them since they were like this little tiny company. So, um, and you also wrote for one of my favorite publications, which one penthouse. Oh yeah. I did a lot of stuff. <laughs> You're going to say play girl. <laughs> no, I did a lot of stuff for penthouse. So, uh, I wrote for like a ton of overseas. So I started out articles then like 2005, I, I started doing the books, all gangster books. You know, and, and there's uh, a ton of them out there. Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah I, I got like I got like 25 books out. That's great. Well, you know what? Like I said, you have all the time in the world to sit down there and reevaluate your life and really pursue in that fashion something yeah. that you're obviously got a got a talent for. I mean, I wrote the majority of those books in prison too. So you know, I've done a couple since I've been out, but even the ones that I put since I've been out, I wrote a lot of the stuff. You know, so all, all like African-American drug lords, like prison gangs, like mafioso, because I, I was locked up with all these dudes. So, you know, I kind of got the idea, you know, I was like, I would just go up to like dudes that I was on the compound with and I, I would be like, man, I, let me write your story. You know, some said no, some said yes. So that's kind of how it went. And, um, but my whole trajectory, the whole way with the writing thing, like I saw filmmaking was like the ultimate goal. Cause to me as a writer, I mean, that's what you do. You do articles, you do books. Then you do film, you know, like if, if you're going to advance, you it's know, like if you're progression. Trying, yeah, that's a progression. I'm wondering where you're going from here, but don't go anywhere just yet because you got some big things out. I know you just had white boy on Netflix where you wrote it. You produce, what, what were your credits on there? I know you wrote it. Yeah, no, I, I wrote in a producer. So, um, actually Sean Reck from transition studios, uh, he's a director and it's his studio. But, you know, I brought the idea to him. It was based like on, because I'd done a whole, I'd been corresponding with Rick since around 2005 till I got in 2015. We're talking and, about Rick Wersh, white yeah. boy Rick himself. Yeah. And um, we were corresponding. He was in one prison and I was another. And I was writing about his case while I was in there, you know, because when he told me about his case, because, um, I mean, this dude was like started out, like he was brought into the game, you know, as an informant when he was 14. And I was like, how, how do you got like a life sentence? Like when you're an informant. So that was just like, you know, it, it was like crazy. And, you know, it, it was like, and even in prison, like the, you always, 
you know, everybody in prison, like you, you distance yourself from informant, but this dude, like the legend about this dude, he had like this mythology from Detroit. It's like, you know, it was, it was kind of like, like a, a character, like somebody like 50 cent, like half the people loved him, half the people hated him. You know, he had that kind of, uh, you know, I guess admiration or envy or hate that he generated. So he had like this crazy story. And, and I thought it was crazy too. Cause it was like, how can a 16 year old white kid like run the drug trade in the crack era in Detroit? So yeah. it was just, it was like phenomenal, like an, this whole story. Anomaly. So, you know, and then I found out like all the details and everything. And, um, yeah. So when, when I got out, that was like one of the stories I wanted to do. Cause we talked about doing a book and stuff, but I was getting out, you know, I wanted to help him get out too. Cause I was like, dude, like, you know, this dude ended up doing like 32 years in prison for, you know, not a first time offense, but a nonviolent offense. Maybe you saw a little bit yeah. of yourself in here. Yeah, I, yeah, we did. We had, a, we, we had a lot of similarities, you know, and, um, and, and plus he had got a life sentence when he was 17 and in 2012, the Supreme court said, you can't give a juvenile a life sentence that that was illegal and they still had him in. So, you know, his case was very political, but I was very blessed to meet Sean Reck and, um, Sean Reck kind of mentored me cause I, I hadn't only been out of prison, maybe like 18 months at this time. You know, I wanted to be a filmmaker and I had done some little shorts and stuff like that, you know, but nothing serious or nothing big time. And, you know, once he had found out I had access to the story and he could base the whole documentary off my work, you know, he, he like basically, you know, made me offer and, uh, you know, he mentored me, you know, on how to make documentaries. And like for that, you know, I'm like, you know, eternally grateful to him because I learned from him. I got to be a part of this amazing documentary that ended up on Netflix and ended up top 10 on Netflix. And, um, we they got, just we got, took it off too. They yeah. Yeah. Just yeah. Took April it off. 1st. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. We didn't renew with them. So, uh, it's good. It's, it's supposed to go on Tubi though. You know, when you switch like uh, mm -hmm. platforms, yeah. sometimes you got to wait like two, three months. Yeah. Contractual contractually. So it should be on Tubi, you know, sooner than later. So it's going to go on Tubi. we've never done the AVOD before. Like that's an advertising video mm -hmm. on demand. So it's supposed to go on that shortly. But, uh, you know, I, I hope to get Rick out. And like I said, the documentary, we can't say that was everything. There was a lot of people, you know, a lot of advocacy, you know, on Rick's behalf, but we helped to get him out and, um, I got to make this amazing film. And more importantly, I got to learn how to make a film from, a. Sean Reck was an Emmy winning, he's an Emmy winning, uh, you know, Emmy winning writer, director, producer, you know, he cut his teeth. Uh, he did like 200 crime stopper shows for all the networks and he won nine Emmys, not like regional Emmys in Ohio, you know, not, not discounting yeah. them by any means, but you know, not like a, you know, not like a national. And Emmy's Emmys. an Emmy. You could always say I'm an <laughs> Emmy award winner. But yeah. So he, he basically mentored me and trained me and, um, and while we were doing this. Though. But you're still going. It's not. It's not like you're one and done. You wrote 25 books. You did White Boy, and you're still going. Now you got this new one coming out, Nightlife, which I got to tell you, I watched it, brother. It's fantastic. Like thank you, thank you. fantastic. I was hoping to watch it in snippets because it's what two hours. It's, no, it's like, uh, about 75 minutes. Okay, yeah. I was hoping to watch it in snippets. I ended up sitting through the whole thing. <laughs> And I got the attention span of a gnat. Uh, you know, he's. It's, it's just one of those me. things you can't. You can't. Oh, it's awesome. You don't. You know, it. it there's. You don't want to leave yourself with a cliffhanger. Let, when you start watching it, you just got to keep watching it to the end. So I love the fact that you you chose to focus. You're, you're actually going somewhere else. You're going somebody who's trying to change the circumstances around them. Yeah. So it's about this. The the preacher's name and I, it's his name. Reverend 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 Kenneth McCoy. Reverend Kenneth McCoy. 
and he's taken back the streets of St. Louis. It's amazing. And wh- where's that coming out on? Let's start there. Wh- where and when? Yeah, so that's um, so that's the north side of St. Louis. The north side of St. Louis is, has uh, like perennial, perennially been in the top five, like for murder capital of the world. But then they got that line. Yeah, it's called the Delmar Divide. Delmar. It's it's crazy, man, because it's like the north of 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 this Delmar Divide is predominantly like black and poor and, and South is, is, you know, rich and white. And you go from like million dollar houses to like, you know, crack houses. And it's, it's basically like a block apart. And it's weird too, because I mean, it's not like there's not cops there, but all the cops are where the property is, where mm. the property is valuable. Like the other side, like they don't care. You know, I, I even know, like I interviewed like citizens and they'll walk across a block to like where the central West end is and there are cop cars sitting there and they'll be like, Hey, you know, there, there's like a open air drug market over there. And the yeah. cops will just be like, yeah, you we know, know. Yeah. you know, so, I mean, but I, I think this story that, that I did nightlife, it's a microcosm of, of what's happening. Like, like all over our country, you know, like with redlining, you know, gentrification, you know, all, all this different type of issues. And, um, yeah, when I met, I met this guy, the Reverend Kim McCoy, you know, I, I actually did an article about him and his ministry called Nightlife for Vice first. You know, it was called the, the People Who Walk St. Louis's Most Dangerous Streets. And I did this in 2015. And at the same time, I'm, I'm starting to make White Boy at this time. So I want to make my own film because I'm learning, but I don't have any funding. Right. So I'm looking for something local and I'm looking for something like I can get some college students, you know, with cameras out and, uh, you know, I kind of find this story. So we just go out with this guy. I'm like, Hey, can we just come out with you and start following you with cameras? And he's like, he's like, yeah, cool. So we just start following with cameras. Insane by the way. So I didn't share it. I won't share it, but you, you're, so your camera crew, are you out there? I I don't know whether you were on set at the time. They're just walking around. Yeah. There's your pop, 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 like automatic gunfire. No, I'm in the film. You actually see me a couple of times. I'm actually walking in the film. So I'm, I'm actually in the film, you know, walking around with like a yellow vest on. So, um, yeah, it it was crazy. So it's funny because one of my, uh, one of my camera men was, he was actually ex military dude. Like, I, I don't know. He was like eight years. Like he was in, uh, I don't know, like Iraq, Kuwait or whatever, you know, I guess in the, uh, nineties or two thousands. And, um, then he got out, and he used his GI bill to go to film school. And then I met this guy, his name's Corey Mack. He's actually, he's a producer and a cameraman on the film. And so, um, you know, and, and he was just starting, you know, filming like at that time. So it wasn't like he was that good, but the reason I brought him was because he, he had a, uh, you know, he, he was licensed to carry and he knew how to use it, you know, ex military dude, you know? So, so I knew like Killed nobody two else birds knew, one stone. nobody else <laughs> knew, but you know, this dude, like every time we went out, you know, the, this dude had like a nine, you know, he, thank God he never had to break it out. We never had to use it. But I mean, he was an experienced, yeah. you know, he was an experienced dude. So he, you know, he'd been in a lot of situations and war situations. So, you know, but he had it. So I knew and some, some like, you know, the Reverend Kim McCoy and probably some of the other camera people, they didn't do that, but that was important for me, you know, especially as ex-con. Cause I mean, I can't carry a gun just to have somebody experienced, you know? So, um, yeah, we basically, so we followed, we followed him around for two years and we filmed. He goes out at night, like from uh, 10 p.m. to 2 a.m. on Thursday, Friday, Saturday nights, like all the hot spots. And uh, he's basically a violence interrupter. That's his main thing. But he brings out like fruits, you know, food, you know, blankets, socks, underwear. He has Narcan on him, you know, in case somebody's ODing. He tries to get the addicts 
into rehab. He tries to get the homeless people, you know, into uh, shelters. So that that's kind of his thing. And uh, so we film it for two years. So I got all this footage, man. We got tons of footage because I'm bringing out like three cameramen, three camera people. And every time we're going out and um, then I got to start like this editing process, you know, and I, I'm doing white boy, so I knew how to do it, but it was different because like I'm doing this basically with no budget. I don't I don't have any money, you know. So people are doing a lot of stuff for free for me, or I'm getting a lot of younger people just graduated college, you know, they want to be involved in something. So, you know, I, I it took me a long time. It took me like five years to make this documentary, you know, two years of shooting and then three years of editing. But, you know, finally, you know, it's ready. We're going to premiere uh, July 15th at the St. Louis Filmmaker Showcase. For me, it's important to premiere this film in St. Louis because it's a St. Louis film. And what this guy is doing, he's basically the Reverend Kenneth McCoy. He's on a mission to save his community. So I wanted to have that impact on the community. But, uh, you know, right after, you know, probably in August, we're going we're gonna to release it nationally. So it would be available like on, you know, Amazon, iTunes, and then um, then I'll be looking for a stream, streaming deal. I can't say it's going to end up on Netflix because, you know, I, I don't know what Netflix is, is going to want to buy at that point when we're ready to put it up. Well, you know, with, this story, with this story, uh, because there's very few people in this world that actually, they all, everybody says, I want to change the world, but there are very few people who are actually ready to take a hands-on approach to changing the world. We're about a month out from your premiere. And would you have a problem with us Go play in your trailer. No, no, go ahead. Yeah, you can play. I seen all these bombed out buildings, all this violence. What are you doing? This is your neighborhood. These, these are your people. St. Louis is often described as one of the most divided cities in the country. The opioid crisis is the biggest public health emergency. Are solved with a gun. The number of homicides in St. Louis this year passed 200. This is about making a human connection. You have to be able to see that there is some breakdown. I wanted to go where nobody else would, where everybody's scared to go. Show that God hasn't forgotten. You really nice when the pistol's getting popped. Is you there? You telling me to quit? You might as well. It ain't working. I, mean, I can't do that, man. Your camera's off now. This real shit. What's the point in having faith if you're not going to take a risk? If you're not going to take a chance? If you're not going to put yourself in harm's way for the sake of a greater good? What's the point? Well, you can tell it's Friday night. Y'all, let's have a word of prayer real quick. Lord, we praise you. We thank you for your goodness and your mercy. We thank you. I've for seen this city. And I've seen the spirit of these people, and I've watched these folk fight for their neighborhoods, street by street, house by house. I start to say I hate to be so preachy, but I am a preacher. But anyway, we're just so blessed. Say hi, Reverend Brown. Hey, everybody, everybody. Hello. Love, I'd love for our audience to see this stuff because, like you, you are you. You did what you did. You changed your life around, and we're coming to the end of this thing. And I, want, I think it's important for people to know that just because your current circumstances are now doesn't mean that they could be your future circumstances. So, at the end of every show, every guest that we bring in there, we walk them through this journey 
you went through a really, really rough journey. Uh, nonviolent offender, 21 years in prison that you did out of a 25-year, 25, 26, doesn't matter. Yeah, 25, 25 years. 25 years. So if you had to quantify all this suffering that you went through in your life, what do you think it's taught you? I would just say, I always tell people, my my biggest thing is I'm I'm relentless. You know, like that's all. That's yeah. what I took out of it. Just keep going. Yeah, uh-huh. he's like a keep going kind of guy. I mean, it's, yeah, I'm it's not. Amazing. I'm not. I'm not the most talented. There's people that are way more talented than me at, at everything. You know, but I think my best attribute, my best talent, is I'm relentless. I don't give up. And and like I say, I I, I had to walk this journey. I mean, I, I look at it now. Whatever. A lot of people are like, how do you do 21 years or whatever? But I mean, I did it. I had to do it. I didn't have any choice. You know, so I did it and I walked through and I did the best I can at every moment, every day. I mean, do I look back now and say, oh, you could have did it this way. You could have did it this way, whatever, you know? And um, even, even for my first five years, like I would look back like on my case and I was like, what, what could I have done different? Like if I did this at this point, but you know, everybody can do that in life. At some time, you just got to think whatever you did, you made the best decision, what you thought at the time, even if it was an awful decision. So you just got to leave the past in the past, you know, and keep moving forward. So that's how I do everything. You know, um, I don't allow any negativity in my life. I don't dwell on anything that happened. You got a great attitude. You know, I just, I just move forward, man. You know, cause I even see it out here and I, I this is a big thing that doing all that time taught me, right? Cause I did so much time. I saw so many people come back. Right. And I saw so many people like, they were like hung up on shit. They couldn't get over it. Like their girl left them, you know, their baby mama won't let them see their kids. You know, somebody snitched on them. You know, they lost their house. They lost their money. You know, their best friend betrayed them, you know, all this different stuff. And I saw these people and they're just like, they're like fucked up. They keep dwelling on the same shit. And then they're like, you know, they're on drugs, you know, they're on like that chaos, that gang violence, you know, they're on whatever to get their mind off of the issue that's eating them up. And, you know, I, I saw this in prison, like it's, it's everywhere, like right in front of your face. Cause it's such a negative world. Right. And I, I just decided like, I'm not going to be that person. You know, I'm not going to, you know, I'm not going to linger on, you know, all the people, you know, that, that turned informant on me. I'm not going to linger on this. And, you know, but then when I get out in the world, I, I see at the same time, you know what I tell people all the time, right? I say, look, man, the only thing that's going to get in the way of your dreams is yourself. It's a good point. You get, you got to start looking back. You know, I, there's a quote that I hear all the time and I just heard it today too. That's why the windshield is bigger than the rear view mirror. It's a good point. And I think we'll, I think we'll leave it there. Seth, thank you so much for coming in, coming all this way to join us. This has been an eye opening experience. I've actually, I've learned a lot. I want everybody to look out for your documentary nightlife. Of course, white boy, continue to watch that. It'll be out. I'm sure that's, that's a, that's a really good documentary. So I think it's going to be out everywhere. And that's going to do it for this episode of the Suffering Podcast. I want to remind everybody, go to BelladamaCigars.com, put in Suffering 10, you get a nice 10% discount. Thanks again to Toyota of Hackensack. Visit ToyotaHackensack.com. And let's think about all the stuff that we learned today. Everyone wants to be important. Sometimes the best things come from the worst things. Anything is possible if you choose to use your time, but most importantly, be relentless. I like that very much. And that's going to do it for this episode of The Suffering Podcast, The Suffering of an Ex-Con Filmmaker with Seth Ferranti. Follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Follow Mike at Mike underscore DeFelace. Follow me at Real Kevin Donaldson. Also follow The Suffering Podcast. And we're going to see you on the next episode of The Suffering Podcast. This is going to hurt.
let's talk about the suffering. suffering. 